Mysteries to Die For is brought to you by Down and Out Books and imprint all due respect. Sonny Canton's having a really bad day. Wait to see what the next 24 hours bring. From Greg F. Giffoon, author of Dangerous Boys in the Bleeding Season, comes Velvet Elvis. Set in one hot, crazy night and populated with hard-drinking, pot-smoking ex-cons, shady strippers, aging mobsters, crooked cops, and sociopathic drug lords, Velvet Elvis is one man's dark and sometimes darkly comic descent into madness and mayhem. Velvet Elvis by Greg Giffune, available everywhere October 18th. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these lives front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes, no matter how often my voice breaks. This is season three, Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations of the first cases for detectives. Some will be characters from books, screen, and stage. Others will be lesser known, but with great stories that we hope you give a try. Episode four is about love and devotion, right or wrong. This is Grease and the Leavenworth Case, an adaptation of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. All right, everyone. So Jack and I went shopping this week, and we got a couple new mics and some new gear. Uh, yes. So hopefully the, the sound quality will, will even out a little between our microphones. Yes. <laughs> if you haven't joined our Body Bagger Day Brigade, this would be an excellent time to throw some pennies in to help defray the costs. And so our accountant, i.e. husband slash father, yep. depending on which weather of us is talking, is a happier man. <laughs> All right, so today's story was published in 1878, and this was the first book for Anna Catherine Green. So she was known as a poet, but her commercial success was as a mystery writer. Now, there weren't many who came before her. We've already done two by Edgar Allan Poe. There's Emile Gabriot, <laughs> two weeks later, and I still can't say the poor guy's name, uh, Lecoq's writer, and we have Wilkie Collins and E.T.A. Hoffman. The names that we most commonly associate with mysteries may have been contemporaries of Green, but they published after her. So Greece is uh, the first set of stories that I've come across, which are set in the U.S. Even though Poe was American, his Dupin stories are set in Paris. Uh, we know that Greece himself is an immigrant, and today's story doesn't spend any time on his background, but when he's talking to a lawyer, Everett Raymond, who's helping him on the case, he's lamenting the limitations of his position, saying, the first gentleman I approached stared at me, real gentleman, I mean, none of your American dandies, and I had no stare to return. I kind of had to read that, that like twice, Jack, American dandies, American like, I don't even know what Australians that is. calling each other Aussies or something. 
I don't know. I took it Uh-oh. as being like a fancy man, but he doesn't put gentlemen and dandies in the same corner. But when he, he says you're American, that definitely means that he doesn't identify, <clears throat> you know, as American. I see. <clears throat> so. I did some digging on his name, and according to names.com, gr- the name Greece dates back to the 1060s and the English county of Norfolk, although I think they say it Norfolk. It almost sounds dirty, Norfolk. <laughs> Migration of the Greases went to Ireland and Massachusetts cool. and Virginia, and I'm sure they went other places too. There were 13 Greece mysteries released between 1878 and 19. <laughs> you guys couldn't see what Jack just did, but it was pretty inappropriate. <laughs> It was fine. <laughs> they were released between 1878 and 1917. Green released 18 other mysteries between 1883 and 1923, plus a collection uh, yes. of short stories. So, I mean, Quite this woman the, uh, really cranked out the mysteries. Yep. Okay, cool. Ah, uh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. That was a cool era. The word is prolific. She's not as famous as some of her contemporaries, like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And it seemed like some of the criticisms when I was reading said that her writing never, quote, outgrew the Victorian practices of love scenes, stilted dialogue, and convolutedness. So I've read two of her stories so far, and I couldn't find the love scenes. Certainly not by our standards. And see, our dogs agree if you could microphone pick them up. I also did not find them to be filled with emotion or sentimentality. Yeah. Sure, some characters right, like were annoying, but that's Umbridge more a sign of good writing. Potter. Like, she's impressively easy to want to kill. Exactly. Do you think that actress uh, got, no. like, death threats for being, like, that good at being annoying? It would be uh, dramatic, no. and yet, I guess... In this day and age, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, so you want to tell us cool. about other things going so, on in the world while I time. leave the room and go all kill our dogs? There fun stuff going on in the world. Uh, but we're not going to talk about stuff that ended up in history. Textbooks, nay-nay, which doesn't exist anymore because everything is digital. Oh, I should have read that correctly. Textbooks don't exist because technology. Uh, we're going to talk about the fun stuff. So in February... Oh, why did you give me Russian name? Yeah, I haven't been paying attention. Tchaikovsky. Peter we've said Ta- Tchaikovsky before. Chalk Sky. Peter Chalk Sky debuted his fourth <laughs> symphony in F. Tchaikovsky. Its first performance was at a Russian musical society concert in Moscow on February 22nd, 1878, with Nikolai Rubinstein as conductor. I like Rubinstein. He's cool. Uh, he did, well, yeah, but also he did a cover of, um, <laughs> you like that you I can might say wrong. his name. I might be extremely wrong, but he did a cover of Chopin and that's the only cover that you can, that I kind of like of it, but it's, I believe is opera number nine. I don't remember what the heck it was. Opus, whatever. I look m- big brain. Um, Opus. Opus yeah, that's very incorrect. In middle Europe. Middle I Europe? know you like calling them operas. Um, yeah, that's very in 
mm, Middle Europe. It sometimes received the, the names Phantom or Fate. Middle Europe. What did? Oh, I'm going to restart this paragraph. Nobody is following this. Um, Chalk Boy debuted his fourth, 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 number four symphony in F. Its first performance was at the Russian Musical Society in Moscow. And then on February 2nd, 1878, Rubinstein uh, was the conductor. Uh, in Middle Europe, it sometimes received its name Fant- or Fatum or Fate. Uh, a link to a performance is in the show notes if you care. Which You know, the funny thing is that when you finger an F chord on a guitar string when you're new, it is one of the hardest chords to finger. And so I think that F is very appropriately named. So they said it was called Fate or, uh, f- or how funny. do you say it? Fat. Thomas I'm, like, I'm pretty sure somebody calls it something patent else. For his, um, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce this incorrectly, his phonogram. Uh, that, led to, uh, that led to all kinds of good musical things. Uh, it's great that vinyl has made a comeback. It would have been nice if my dad didn't get rid of all of his albums in the 70s and 80s. I don't like when you write the script in my point of view i think it's weird i think it's weird knowing that you said that in your head no i think it's weird <laughs> i'd say to myself what would jack uh, say and that's that what i write you, does I it creep you out that i'm that right or that i can do it to your husband as my dad that's what creeps me out so we're gonna keep going and pretend that we just didn't have that conversation Lastly, the first attempt was made at moving pictures. It wasn't for entertainment, uh, but to study the strides of a horse to see if there was something happening the human eye couldn't see. That sounds like something that starts with an argument or bet. The answer was yes. Using 24 separate pictures, the horse's stride was shown, including at all times none of its legs were on the ground. What? Oh, that at times none of its legs are on the ground. So that sounds like a long way to go to win a bet. I love that you never pre-read uh, your part of the script. It and and just adds the like wrong. this entire dynamic nature. <laughs> yeah. Well, with that riveting introduction from the two of us, we are ready to begin our story. And so while Jack turns off his voice mic and turns on his piano mic, warms his fingers up, I'll explain why we're doing adaptations of these early stories. The two main reasons, one is that some of these earliest mysteries date to the 1800s like we're doing today, and they can be really hard and difficult to understand with our modern ear. The cadence of speech is different, and oh lord, they like the comma. The second is that the style and length of these stories were created for reading, not for listening. So with adaptations, we are working to keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative that created a genre, but update it for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes, and so we are ready for Greece and the Leavenworth case. Jack, take us in. Chapter 1. Mr. Leavenworth's Body The man lying in the unnatural repose in his bed is Mr. Horatio Leavenworth, aged some 50 years when he died, and in good health aside from the bullet passing through his brain. The projectile entered near the base of his skull and exited through his forehead, a very messy way to die. It didn't happen here in his bed. Because it was a messy way to die, I know exactly where the main event took place. It was in the library 
the large room of a professional man was attached to the bedroom. His butler and his secretary carried him to the bed at the direction of one of Levensworth's nieces, who had the foolish notion that a doctor could still have been of assistance. Here is what I know. 1. Leavenworth routinely worked for an hour each night with his secretary, a man named James Truman Harwell. They did so last night, their session extending from 8.30 to about 9.30, which was more or less normal. 2. Leavenworth was writing a book on the Western influence of China. He and his secretary hit a milestone and celebrated with Sherry. Harwell, according to his testimony, drank his straight down while Leavenworth sipped half. The other half remained in the glass, on the table that served as a desk, in the position it was when Harwell last saw it. 3. Leavenworth did not appear at breakfast as was his habit. One of his nieces, the dark-haired Eleanor, went to check on him. She found the door to his bedroom locked and did not see a res response to her knocking. She reported back to her fair-haired cousin Mary, as well as Harwell and their butler, Thomas Doherty. The two men investigated and found the same scene. They broke in and discovered Leavenworth slump lumped, slumped over his table, wearing his dinner clothes. 4. In addition to the library and bedroom door being locked, the house itself had been closed up. Doherty locked all the doors and exterior he locked all the windows and the exterior doors around 11 before he retired for bed. He opened the house around 6 in the morning. Between himself and the cook, he was confident that anyone entering the house would have been seen or heard. 5. The young lady's maid, Hannah, was missing. She slept on the fourth floor with the cook and was last seen to be going to visit Eleanor because she had a sore tooth. Eleanor dispensed the household remedies. Eleanor reported she never arrived at her bedroom. Upon all of these discoveries, the household was in turmoil. Harwell went off to Leavenworth's solicitor, Mr. Veerly, for he would be the one to support the young ladies. The cook went to the local Manhattan police precinct, who sent for me, Ebenezer Grease. Chapter 2, The Weapon Leavenworth was a millionaire, and his Fifth Avenue home was a mansion. The first floor consisted of the rooms necessary for a man of his social standing. Off the center hall was a large parlor, a music room, a more intimate parlor, and the dining room and kitchen. Doherty had a small room here. The second floor was Leavenworth's domain. His bedroom and library filled one half of the floor. The rooms opposite had been his wife's and had been remained unused since her death some ten years prior. The third floor had a suite of sitting rooms and two bedrooms. This belonged to the nieces. Harwell had his room on this floor, while another awaited guests that seldom were invited. The smaller fourth floor was shared by the cook, Hannah, and the other upstairs maid. As I was inspecting the main entrance, a key began turning in the front door. I opened it and looked into a familiar face. Mr. Everett Raymond, I said. Looking past him to the secretary, Harwell, I understood this was not a random visit. Mr. Grice, Raymond said, surprised but not unhappy to see me. 
If you're here, it has to be every bit as bad as this gentleman has indicated. I am Mr. Veerly's junior partner, here to advise the Mrs. Leavenworths in their time of need. Raymond stepped in, Harwell behind him. Doherty appeared at once and divested Raymond of his overcoat and hat in a way he hadn't done for me. But then, Raymond was a gentleman, and I but a workman. Raymond then beckoned me aside. What has happened, Grease? The man they sent for really was very short on details. I was surprised at the lack of recognition given Harwell's story of being employed for the last year. Harwell is Leavenworth's secretary. You don't know him? Raymond shook his head. Leavenworth worked exclusively with Veerly. I had met him, of course, but the two of them go way back. Veerly is out of the city or he would have come himself. I see. Well, come this way. I led Raymond to the second floor and into the library, his gaze instantly affixed on a large stain on the table. He paled. Is that? Blood, I finished for him. He cut me a scalding glare. You could have warned me. What happened? We entered the room now, walking around the periphery to consider it from every viewpoint. Mr. Leavenworth was sitting in the chair, his usual manner if I'm not mistaken. His back was to his bedroom. Given the entry point at the back of the head and the exit point near the top of his forehead, it could not have been self-inflicted. No, Mr. Leavenworth was murdered. Raymond blanched at the final words, but then began to look around. He must have been bent over the table, he said, else his killer would have had to have been on his knees, an arrangement which would have drawn his attention and thereby eliminated the possibility of the angle. Agree, I said, and Leavenworth either did not hear his killer enter, or, Raymond said, finishing for me, was so comfortable with the killer, he didn't feel compelled to look up. I nodded. The household consisted of Leavenworth and his two nieces, the secretary Harwell, and the servants, the butler Doherty, the cook, and the two maids. I summarized for him my previously made five points. We entered the bedroom then. I suspected it was Raymond's first body. He swallowed hard a time or two, then got on with things. We'll need the maid to determine if anything is missing. I shrugged as I opened anything that would open. If there is, it's incidental. This was not a robbery, if that's your thought. We debated the merits of a stranger entering the house. Did we not just say that the body position points away from a stranger? People, they always want criminals to be some stranger. That is how hard it is to believe that someone you know was killed by someone they know. In the bedside table, I found a pistol. We have a candidate, I said. I opened the chamber and all the bullets were accounted for. I sniffed and detected the telltale odor of gunpowder. I poured the bullets into my hand. The gun had been cleaned. All except one, cha one chamber. Chapter 3. The Maid, the Stranger, and the Handkerchief I interviewed everyone in the house, having them recount events from dinner the night before to that moment. Mr. Raymond was at my side while one of my own, an appropriately named man called Fobbs, continued the detailed search. In houses such as this, it is often difficult to get to the matter of the truth because one's honor is thought to be interwoven with protecting others in the house. Often, the lies and half-truths told to me have nothing to do with the case, and much time could be saved if tongues would do their job. 
In most cases, and in this case in particular, details began to weave together the holes. First was Miss Eleanor. Worth noting, upon meeting the young lady, Mr. Raymond's IQ took a dramatic turn south. He was able to recover enough that words with more than one syllable returned to his brain. The admiration, though, never left his eyes. Miss Eleanor recounted the story already known, adding only that she knew her uncle had a gun and where he kept it. Eleanor acted as the keeper of her uncle's rooms. Miss Eleanor was beautiful, with her dark hair and womanly form. She spoke softly, as if by her voice alone she could soothe the world's woes. Her cousin, Miss Mary, was more beautiful, with her light hair and blue eyes. She entered with the air of one used to being deferred to. Mary claimed that she went up the stairs but didn't enter the library or the bedroom. She returned to the dining room to wait information. Yes, she knew her uncle kept a pistol. It had been shown to all the day he bought it. Yes, she knew where it was kept. All in the household did. It was not a secret. Fobbs returned with the half-used candlestick. He found it in the rear yard between the house and the carriage house. It was the cook who confirmed that Hannah had lit the candle when she went to Miss Eleanor. Hannah was afraid of the dark, and the gas lights had been put out for the evening. The recovery of the candlestick shook Doherty, who, by his expression, was certain that no one had entered or left the house between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. I pressed Harwell hard and, well, <laughs> that was pretty punny, as he was the last to see Leavenworth alive and the first to see him dead. Convenient, I said to him. Hardly, said he, keeping up the punny business, is I did not kill him. I left him to proof our day's product, knowing I would wake to a full itinerary. I stared at him. He was a rigid sort of man, the kind it is impossible to know what he is thinking. Has there been any discord in the house, I asked, between Leavenworth and his nieces, with a business associate? Harwell hesitated. It was minute, but it was there. He had no issues in his professional life, not outside of the usual thing, he said. Certainly, nothing worth killing over. And his personal life, I prompted. I believe there was some tension between him and one of his nieces, but such a thing is not uncommon with young women. He suddenly sat a little taller. I did not think anything of it at the time, but about three weeks ago, I found Miss Eleanor in the bedroom with the pistol in her hands. She asked me to show her how to use it. I did, without actually firing it, of course. I'm sure it was a coincidence. Fob again appeared at the doorway. I dismissed Harwell in favor of evidence. Fob presented a lady's handkerchief. This was found stuffed between the cushions of the couch, he said. It's embroidered, sir. E-M-L. Eleanor Margaret Leavenworth, Raymond said with a pinch in his voice. Hold on, It can't hold on. be a coincidence. It can't be a coincidence that this person Fob accidentally left Molly. their handkerchief in a freaking couch. Stop for a second. That's the stupidest sentence I've ever heard. <clears throat> How dare... I lose my keys in the couch. I lose my remote. Are you saying people didn't lose things in their couch back in the 1800s? <laughs> he does lose his what keys the? in the couch. That is not evidence, <laughs> and my phone. friend. It's that is somebody true. sat down with a right. handkerchief in their You're pocket right. and it fell out. Oh, but it's embroidered. I guess that means it's got to be hers, and it means that, you know, she's the killer, right? No, that is the stupidest. I'm sorry. We can go back to, you know, the actual podcast. Bye.
We can go back to, you know, the actual <laughs> podcast. Bye. Okay, Molly, the upstairs maid is now entering. Molly came in nervous and uncertain of herself. Her pale Irish coloring made her look a frail thing. I, create, I reacquainted her with the purpose of our presence, and she was reassured that she only wanted to do what was right. Please think carefully, Molly. Did anything unusual happen yesterday, last evening? She frowned. A gentleman called unusually late. Mr. Doherty admitted him, and I happened to see him as I was passing through the hall. He called on Mr. Leavenworth, I asked. She shook her head. He asked for Miss Eleanor. That much I heard. A step forward, I thought. I set the handkerchief on the table between us. Do you recognize this? Certainly, she, she said innocently. This is Miss Eleanor's. I laundered it the day before yesterday and returned it to her bedroom yesterday morning. Where did you find it? Hidden in the library, I said. Her face lost the little color she had. I am certain there is a good explanation, just like Jack said. <laughs> Chapter 4. The Key to It All It's not looking good for Eleanor Leavenworth, is it, Grace? Raymond paced the parlor, worry easy to read in his expression. After all, she asked Harwell to teach her how to fire the gun. Her handkerchief was found in the library, hidden away. If she was in her room, as she said, how did she not see the maid Hannah who sought her out? All true, I said, and yet, what motive does she have? Money, Raymond said simply. As much as I don't want to think it, her uncle named her cousin as his heiress. She killed him out of revenge. I had considered and dismissed the argument myself. It doesn't make sense. With her uncle dead, her cousin inherits. The only chance she had to change the will depended on him remaining alive. The evidence is mounting, but it's circumstantial, creating more questions than answers. What of this stranger, Raymond asked, Mr. Leroy Robbins? Perhaps he snuck back into the house and shot Leavenworth. I have a man looking into him, I said, but it is agreed by all that he was a stranger. How would he know not only where to find Leavenworth, but where to find the pistol in the bedroom drawer? Raymond shrugged. Perhaps Leavenworth took it out after Harwell went to bed. This Robbins fellow may have seized it spontaneously. I laughed softly. And then he cleaned it with the lady's handkerchief, omitting cleaning the actual chamber, and by good fortune, placing the gun back in the correct place. No, if it happened as you said, we would have found the weapon in the library. Do you know what I would like to find? The key that locked the doors. The butler said it was an unusual key, Raymond added, one that had long ago been damaged. Your man Fobbs has not located it? No, I said. All the keys controlled or known by the household have been inspected. None were to Leavenworth's chambers. Further speculation was postponed as Doherty appeared in the doorway and announced the arrival of the coroner, Mr. Hammond. Within two hours, the parlor had been transformed into a hall of justice. The jury was seated in chairs borrowed from the dining room. Testimony mounted in the obvious case of murder. The experts testified, first the bullet caliber, the murder weapon, the fatal injury. I elbowed Raymond. Fetch the Mrs. Levensworth. Me, he said? I nodded sharply. 
You are their advocate. Raymond left the room as I did two steps behind him. At the top of the staircase, on the third floor, a door was ajar. Raymond had his hand raised, poised to knock, when a woman's voice was sharp and distinct. I do not accuse your hand, though I know of none other which could have done this deed, but your heart, your head, your will, these I do and I must accuse, in my secret mind at least, and it is well that you should know it. Raymond froze. I pushed past him, startling him. Remember your purpose, I said. But who was it that spoke, he asked. Only one way to find out. I pushed open the door. The feminine room was richly decorated. Half rising out of an armchair was the beautiful and delicate Mary Leavenworth. The hand gripping the arm of the chair was quivering and the other hand pointed across the room. There stood Eleanor Leavenworth. One hand was clenched upon her breast and the other planted on a small table at her side, her composure completely hostile. The pair returned their attention from each other to us, their volcanic emotions melting away. Raymond cleared his voice, then spoke with the compassionate authority. Ladies, the coroner is calling for you. Their testimony was anything but clear and concise. The hostility between the two was palpable across the room. Evidence was mounting against Eleanor, who did not seem to understand the noose was tightening. It was Mary who jumped to her feet and declared her cousin innocent. Eleanor promptly faded. Once revived, she was allowed to retire to her room. Fobbs went with her, with orders to go where she went. The order was a wise one as within a short time he was in possession of the missing key and a partially destroyed letter. She was trying to burn the letter, Fobbs said. I saved as much as I could. For good measure, I sifted through the ash, and that's where I found the key. In which room was this, I asked. The parlor? Fobbs shook his head. The one at the front of the house. That would be Mary's bedroom, I said. Let's have another conversation with Miss Eleanor. In truth, it was a waste of breath. The girl truly did not understand where she stood in the world. Her stubborn refusal to answer direct questions about the key, the letter, or her presence in Mary's room pointed to her protecting someone. And yet, that was intuition, not fact. Chapter 5, Incognito The day ended less than satisfactorily. The inquest found Leavenworth to be murdered by a pistol, by person or persons unknown. It showed the intelligence of the jury that the finger of guilt was not pointed at Eleanor Leavenworth. Mary Leavenworth, in the final interview, begged me to continue investigating, for she knew in her heart that Eleanor could not have done this. She then left the house, explaining that it was too small for her and her cousin. I put Raymond on her, sending him to be the shoulder she cried on. Fob stayed with Eleanor while I went home. First thing in the morning, Raymond was at my door, engaging me to also prove Eleanor innocent. It was all but written on his face. The chap was fully gone over, over the dark-haired niece. Tell me of the evening with Mary, I ordered. She was shattered, he said. She borrowed paper and asked for the carriage to stop to post the note. I didn't see what she wrote or to whom. One of my men had followed the carriage and indeed saw Mary hurrying out of the carriage to drop the note. 
he was able to talk to the postmaster and was able to see the letter. I returned Ele to Eleanor later that evening, Raymond said. She satisfied me she didn't do it. She led me into that bedroom and laid her cheek upon her uncle's cold chest. There was nothing in her face except love and grief. I accept her as innocent and want to help you prove it. Excellent, I said. Raymond was startled. It seemed he expected an argument. You believe her too? Tell me, Grease, what can I do to help? I'll do anything. Those were the words I wanted to hear. I took lessons for a time, I said. Lessons on how to be a gentleman. Raymond snorted and then quickly composed himself, as the gentlemen do. You don't say. I smile, amused. You will not be surprised to find out that I wasted my money. It seems that, well, I am what I am. There are many situations I can walk into and be effective. Those are situations a man like yourself would never find yourself in. I can see that, Raymond said, just as I can walk into situations in which you cannot. You see my point exactly, Raymond. Miss Mary asked you to finish the work of her uncle's manuscript, correct? His mouth fell open for a moment. She did? How did you know? I agreed to it, albeit reluctantly. I am to go there each evening to work with Harwell. Excellent, I said again. You will be in the right position to see the happenings of the household, to ferret out the secrets they are so obviously keeping. His mouth, again, fell open. I will not. I am not some kind of, some kind of mole, some kind of... Detective, I offered, and then shrugged. I understand, Mr. Raymond. I will get along in my own way. It will take longer, but I am confident I will get to the truth. I only hope the public is patient for Miss Eleanor's sake. Raymond paced away, cursing under his breath. Then he spun to face me. Listen, Grease, I'll go into the house. One other task for you, I said. I want you to go to Hoffman House and make your acquaintance with Henry Claverling. Don't be obvious about it. In fact, don't talk to him at all. Let him come to you. Raymond frowned. What does he have to do with all of this? I smiled. That is what you are to find out. Uncomfortable in the shoes he found himself in, Raymond paced for nearly a minute. I'll work with Harwell, I'll talk with Mary and with Eleanor, and I'll share the contents of those conversations. I'll even make myself available to this claverling fellow, but I draw the line at snooping. I won't listen at doors or rifle through drawers. That part I leave to you. I held out my hand. You play the gentleman and talk and charm. I'll play the mole and dig. Chapter 6. The Mole Finds a Rat While Mr. Everett Raymond was off doing the pretty with the Mrs. Levensworth, I had plenty of work to keep me busy. I had a man assigned to identify Mr. Leroy Robbins. The butler, Mr. Doherty, remained tight-lipped about the visitor, added only a few details when he decided later it was the fastest route to my exit. One, the gentleman presented a playing card with his name handwritten. He had retained the card, an oversight, and turned it over to me. The card stock was of high quality and the signature made with a strong practice hand, free of any distinguishing marks. Mr. Robbins spoke with a British accent. Mr. Leavenworth loathed Brits. He would not say why, but he knows. Doherty showed Robbins to the parlor, and when he left to talk to Miss Eleanor, she had refused to see him. After three days, 
I knew a lot about what Mr. Robbins was not. He was not a known resident of New York City. He had not spent any time in our jails, and he was not listed on any ships recently arrived in New York. I did learn why Leavenworth hated Brits. It was because of his wife. When in London on business, Leavenworth met a young woman and fell in love. She was American and had a child, but Leavenworth didn't care or ask for the circumstances. He proposed to her. She turned him down, explaining that when she was young, barely 16, she met a man who swept her off her feet. He was courting her when her father suddenly died. Her world upside down, she married the man and returned with him to Britain. Before she set foot on the soil, he had hit her for the first time. He looked a gentleman, always perfectly dressed, and yet he was a monster. Two days after her child was born, she took the baby and what she could, and she ran. A year later, word reached her that her husband had died. She was free, but she would never be free. She refused to burden Leavenworth, the disgrace of having a child. A year later, her babe took sick, and he too died. Leavenworth again asked her to marry him, and she did, but she never recovered from her heartbreak. She died less than a year after their marriage, a few months before the two young girls came to live with him. Leavenworth blamed his wife's first husband, and indeed, all of Britain, for his wife's demise. And that is that. If you recall, Miss Mary hastily posted a note that night she left Leavenworth's home. We were able to review the address, though not the letter itself. The name was Henry Claverling, Hoffman House, New York. I telegrammed to an associate in London and asked him to look into Mr. Claverling. I couldn't have hoped for a more thorough report. Mr. Henry Ritchie Claverling was an accomplished man, building on what he inherited from his father. He had an excellent reputation as a businessman and for his dedication to his mother. He had traveled to America the prior year, entering Boston and traveling through New England and upstate New York, staying in the company of friends. He abruptly returned to Liverpool last August when word reached him that his mother was ill. It was only a month ago he returned to America, and specifically to New York, taking accommodations at the excellent Hoffman House Hotel. With the correspondence answered, who was the man was, it shed no light on his relationship to the case. I speculated, of course, that the British Henry Caverling was the British Leroy Robbins. The description of the two men was similar enough that it was a possibility. Where would Miss Eleanor, a young lady, meet a man of Claverling's statue? A social event? Perhaps. It was unlikely through her uncle. Although not an heiress, Miss Eleanor was certainly pretty enough to catch the attention of a man like Clavering. It would be readily believable that his calling on her was in the normal manner of a man calling on a woman. Hannah. Ah, Hannah. There has been no trace of her beyond the candle in the yard. I do not suspect her of the crime, only of knowing important facts. Facts worth running for. Secrets. Why are there so many secrets? Chapter 7. The Gentleman Learns a Secret. Raymond appeared at my door one morning, excited and agitated in equal measures. So much has happened, Grace. I feel I have the direction and need to explore it before I share the facts with you. I smiled. So the role of the mole is suiting you? 
what? he exclaimed. No, it's just that I want to make sure I have learned is true and real. I don't want another innocent person to be caught up in a web. Admirable, I said, but this is your first case and I am a professional. It may be that I have information that would answer your questions. He nodded, thinking it through, how much he would have to give up to get what I had. Now that the will has been read, Mary has moved back into the house and Eleanor is at the rooming house. The house is hers, I said, but Leavenworth did not completely abandon Miss Eleanor. Neither girl knew, Raymond said. Leavenworth left Eleanor enough that she can live comfortably. That doesn't help her case, does it? I shook my head. Now your money motive has a place to stand. That's what I was afraid of. Raymond looked remarkably sad for a moment. Then he changed directions. Mary had a visitor. Mr. Henry Ritchie Claverling. Harwell and I were coming down the stairs when Doherty admitted him. Harwell ran back up the stairs. I followed, forced him to talk. He said Claverling killed Leavenworth. He saw it in a premonition, a dream. Did he now? People of this era were very susceptible to the supernatural. He did. Mary spoke to Claverling. I nearly had her, Grease. I nearly had her convinced to tell me the secret that would free Eleanor. But after she spoke with Claverling, she was more determined than ever in her silence. I sighed. That is disappointing, but not unexpected. Claverling came to my law office, Raymond said. Though we were introduced at Hoffman House, he avoided me. Then, yesterday, he appeared at my door. He wanted a legal opinion on marriage. If a man married a girl of 16, if the minister was dead, if the minister was dead, if one witness was missing and the other reliable, if the girl had the marriage certificate and not he, were they married? I explained the laws of New York and advised that they were, but he could have a difficult time in court. Raymond paused to swallow hard. Greece, I think Eleanor and Claverling may have married last summer at a resort town upstate. I took a moment to digest the unexpected windfall. If it is true, and knowing of Leavenworth's despising of Brits, there may lie the motive. I know, Raymond said, misery in his voice. What I find might vindicate her or could be the nail in the coffin. Go upstate, I told him. I'm going to send a man with you. You aren't going to see him, but if you need him, tie a handkerchief in your window. Do not act on your own. You are not a professional. Am I clear? Chapter 8. A New Set of Facts The young man assigned to Raymond was bright, quick-witted, and asked more questions than a four-year-old. I refer to him as Q for query. Q kept me informed of the happenings in upstate New York as I continued to work on the mystery from Manhattan. I visited again with Miss Mary and Miss Eleanor, failing to move either off their stubborn pedestals. The public was growing more vocal at their dissatisfaction with the progress of the case. By public, I refer to the wealthy individuals who were contemporaries of Mr. Leavenworth, who likely saw the lack of progress as giving ideas to their own beneficiaries. These individuals, it seems, as decided on the basis of rumors and circumstantial evidence, that Miss Eleanor killed her uncle and then attempted to frame her cousin, thus changing the tide of the will. While Miss Eleanor certainly has done nothing to help her case, the evidence is weak. 
I hoped Raymond and Q were having more success than I. It seemed Raymond, with the help of a client he had in the very town we had interest, had secured a room in the house of a generous lady. This was not a random lady, but one known to have been friendly with Miss Mary when the cousins had vacation last summer. The woman, Mrs. Amy Belden, was a widow. After dinner, she put a question to Raymond, the lawyer, for advice. She was in possession of something she had promised to safeguard for two people. The condition was she not return or destroy the possession, except by the express direction of both parties. One party had written directing her to destroy the item, the other sent no direction. After determining the details, Raymond rendered the opinion that she had entered into a contract with both parties, albeit a verbal one, to do, one, to do as one party directed, without the same direction from the other, breached the agreement. It took some back and forth before Mrs. Belden accepted that she did not have enough facts to know if obeying would harm the second party or if disobeying would harm the first party. The conversation, of course, made Raymond and Q curious. Separately, they followed Mrs. Belden when she left her home that night. She buried a box in an old barn, which Raymond had recovered almost immediately. Q also managed to insert himself into the household. Disguised as a vagabond, he slept in the woman's kitchen the first night. He was able to investigate and confirm the maid, Hannah, was staying in the house. She was in a rear-facing bedroom and locked in. Q communicated this to Raymond in the morning, directing him to make contact with the girl. Raymond did as directed, resulting in a dispatch for my immediate appearance. How could she have died? Mrs. Belden asked me. She was right as rain last night, in exceptional spirits when I brought her dinner. If she was well, why did you bring her medicine? Q asked. I didn't, Mrs. Belden said. I brought her a tray and a letter that came in the post. She wasn't ill, not in the least. I looked to Q. Why do you think she was ill? I saw her take a powder, Q said. I had climbed to her window and observed her in her room. She was swaying across the floor, reading a letter. Then she went to a nightstand, opened a folded paper, poured it into a glass of water, and drank it. Mrs. Belden shook her head. I did not take her any powder. She didn't need any. Please stay here, Mrs. Belden. Gentlemen, with me. We three married troops climbed to the second floor in the small room off the back. Hannah Chase lay on the bed, her hand folded on her stomach. Is everything as you found it? I asked. Yes, Q said. I inspected the room superficially, but did not disturb anything. We sent for you immediately. The paper I saw her take is in the wastebasket. The letter she read from is burned in the fireplace. It's thoroughly charred, I'm afraid. I gave Hannah my undivided attention, wondering what she knew that cost her her life. For I would bet my pension that she was poisoned. Lifting her, I discovered a letter beneath her shoulder crudely printed in lead pencil on the inside of a common writing page. It was a testimony. Here's what it said. I am a wicked girl. I have known things all the time which I ought to have told, but I didn't dare to. He said he would kill me if I did, and I mean the tall, splendid-looking gentleman with the black mustache who I saw coming out of Mr. Leavenworth's room with the key in his hand the night Mr. Leavenworth was murdered. I was so scared, he gave me money and he made me go away and come here and keep everything secret, but I can do so no longer. I seem to see Miss Eleanor all the time crying and asking me if I want her sent to prison. God knows I'd rather die. 
and this is the truth and my last words and I pray everybody's forgiveness and hope nobody will blame me and that they won't blame Miss Eleanor anymore but go and look for the handsome gentleman with the black mustache. Raymond's chin snapped up, his expression won a victory. She has given us the key. She has pointed the finger right at Her Henry Claverling. Perhaps, I said, let us return to Mrs. Belden. I am certain she will be more forthcoming. The shock of the dead girl and the presence of two policemen and the lawyer was enough to entice Mrs. Belden into talking. I love Mary Leavenworth as my own daughter, Mrs. Belden said. We grew close in the time she was here. I wasn't the only person Mary met here. There was a young man who was particularly taken with her and she with him. It was a forbidden relationship. He was from Liverpool and Mary's uncle had a particular dislike for the British. Still, the two were like a moth and a flame. The man was Henry Ritchie Claverling, I asked. Mrs. Belden nodded. After weeks of exchanging letters with the help of Hannah and myself, Mr. Claverling asked her to marry him. She agreed. She had planned to sneak away from her cousin Eleanor while their uncle was away at work. Eleanor found out, arriving here before we could leave. She wasn't happy about what Mary was doing, but declared that she was going to be the witness. Claverling married Mary, Raymond said with relief. Mrs. Belden nodded. After, Mr. Claverling left for home. His mother was sick. When Mary agreed to be his wife, she made it conditional that it be she who announced their union. Once Mr. Claverling left, Mary became very distressed that, when her uncle found out, he would disinherit her. She planned to disavow her marriage, all the proof of it. The marriage certificate and Eleanor's diary, they were locked in a box and left here. I raised a hand to stop her. What about the church registry, the witnesses? They didn't sign the registry, Mrs. Belden said. The minister has since died and Mary never filed the certificate with the authorities. I don't know who witnessed for Mr. Claverling, given he was alone here, but Eleanor supported her cousin. Mrs. Belden, Raymond interrupted, regarding the question you asked when I first arrived, it was the certificate, wasn't it? Who wanted it destroyed? Mary did. Mrs. Belden rose, retrieved the letter from the bureau, and with great angst, handed it to Raymond. This is it. Dear, dear friend, he read, I am in awful trouble. You who love me must know it. I can't explain. I can only make one prayer. Destroy what you have, today, instantly, without question or hesitation. The consent of anyone else has nothing to do with it. You must obey. I am lost if you refuse. Do what I ask and save. It was signed one who loves you. Mary, Mrs. Belden said, and then she began to cry. You like how my microphone keeps going lower and lower? I'm going to be sitting on the floor soon. All right, so this is the part of the story where we pause to give you a chance to catch the killer. I think it's uh, Q. So, what Q. do you think, Jack? Totally. I think it's uh, Q. Who? You think it's Q? Totally. You know, the funny thing was when we did the Catherine Green story um, last up or last season, I hadn't read the first one first, and it just was referred to as Q, so I actually named him Quinn. He was the narrator of that oh, first cool. story. So anybody who remembers that, Q yeah. and Quinn are the same person. Interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah. Did you know this, Jack? 
that um, before there was yes. the order and logic of mysteries, there of was the chaos and thrill of horror. Yeah, and I've heard this ad before. You didn't, of course, you know that because you are part of Mysteries to Die For. Well, one of my favorite podcasts, The Other Stories, carries on the tradition with original bite-sized tales of the macabre, the fantastic, and the unexplainable. It's one of my go-to podcasts. So after you all finish listening to this podcast, go check them out and subscribe yeah. wherever you find your podcast and make it the next one you I listen sure to. I sure have. Have you given them a listen to yet? I sure have. I'm like, you nah, would like the I stories. Some to, of them uh, are just flat I don't out what it's like called. creepy. Random podcast once. I listened to like 300 episodes of it, and then I never listened to a podcast again. It was great. I love that, but I don't remember what it was called. <laughs> you burn out 300 episodes in yeah, a row? Yeah, I think it was some... I have no idea what it was. Is it I was also so confused one? for most of it. Because it was like... I, I, I can't even explain. It was just yeah. nothing, yet everything. It was... I don't understand. Oh, I sure. Well, I guess I can't now, can I? Oh, yeah. Well, you put your money on Q as our killer. Oh, I sure. Well, I guess I can't now, can I? Well, I mean, he's a cop. He was entered in of the eight chapters yeah, I read. He entered in chapter eight. I mean, usually you game these mysteries. So I'm not me. sure why you picked him. So uh, I guess I should go with um, Henry um, Cavill or whoever it was. So, uh, yeah, that I one. Guess I should go not with, uh, Superman. Henry Cavill. You're gonna go with Claverling, okay? Well, dear listeners, if your favorite hobby is catching a killer, put your skills to the test with the second book in my De La Cruz case file series, Driving Rain. Was it attempted suicide or murder? Well, if it were suicide, there wouldn't be a story. But Cleveland police detective Jesus De La Cruz does not know that. What he does know is that there shouldn't have been two 911 calls. Read Driving Rain and see if you can untangle the knot before Cruz. Happy hunting, detective. All Yay. right, Jack, we are ready for our favorite part, the big reveal. Yay. Returning to Manhattan, I laid out the facts as I knew them. The facts and evidence seemed split between Miss Mary and Miss Eleanor. In favor of Miss Mary was her secret marriage to Mr. Claverling, one that she believed would cast her out of her uncle's will should he find out. The key and partially buried letter were found in her room. In favor of Miss Eleanor was her direction to remove her uncle's body, a perceived resentment of being the dutiful but overlooked niece, and of being found in the possession of the key and the paper. Claverling certainly had motiv motivation if Lever... <laughs> Let's try that sentence over again. Claverling certainly had motivation if Leavenworth was standing between him and his wife. Did he have opportunity? Perhaps, if the gun was out as Raymond suggested, if he had helped putting it away. Complicated, but plausible. Then there was the weapon itself. Everyone in the household knew the pistol existed and where it was kept. The gun was fully loaded. Firing it was easy. Cleaning it, though. This was something neither lady could do which meant the contradictory evidence had been contrived to both vindicate and implicate both cousins. Physically, there were only two people with the knowledge, motive, and opportunity to commit this crime. I knocked on the door of the rooming house where Henry Claverling had taken up residence. It was across from the Leavenworth mansion and provided him with the opportunity to watch over his wife. 
He was surprised at my arrival, to say the least, but he recovered himself well. I informed him that I would soon be interviewing a suspect, and that, if he were interested in the truth, he would be welcome to discreetly listen in. He agreed, of course, and I gave him a time the next day to be at my residence. I then paid the same call on James Truman Harwell, the last man to see Leavenworth alive. I gave him the same opportunity. The man's rigid facade cracked, his expression an eager one. I also gave him the time of day and told him to be at my residence. Q had his orders and his role to play. Finally, I sent Raymond a note, demanding his presence at a precise time. Being the man he is, Raymond arrived on the dot. We are near to the end, I told him. To catch the killer, I need you to accompany me. I will say things, and no matter how outlandish they are, you are to support and agree with me. Do you understand? In simple terms, I do, he said. But why? Because we are orchestrated as surely as we are musicians. We need to change the score. Now, follow me. I led Raymond out of my rooms and up the staircase to a turret. The room was simple and bare except for a table set with two chairs. The hexagon room had several doors in addition to the entrance. Behind, there were small rooms that sometimes acted as holding cells. In the room, I gestured toward a chair. Smith, I said, giving Raymond a nom de plume, I have solved the mystery of the Leavenworth murder, and I have the villain in custody within an hour. Fantastic, Grease, Raymond said, picking up his cue. We all knew you were the man for the job. I gave him a short, approving nod. When I dedicate myself to a case, I do not stop until justice is face to face with the criminal. Do you want to know who it is? Of course, he said. Do not keep me in suspense. I spoke in a clear voice, playing to our hidden audience. It was a long chase, Smith, with many twists. To have a woman involve complicated manners, a woman will never be able to pull the wool over my eyes, no matter how beautiful she is. I launched into a monologue on the evidence, tipping the scale toward Miss Eleanor. She was in a position of peril, one she chooses not to defend, but then perhaps I have done it for her. By chasing down old secrets and following unpromising clues, I have determined that Miss Eleanor was not the assassin. No, Raymond said, remembering at the last moment his role. But everything you just said. No, I said sharply, cutting him off. It was another woman. Mary Leavenworth is the assassin of her uncle and of the maid, Hannah Chester. Raymond's face displayed his shock. You don't say. I do say, and yet you don't believe me, I said. Perhaps the facts will convince you. I launched into another monologue, this time playing up all the evidence against Miss Mary. The facts mounted until Mary was standing at the base of Ben Nevis, the tallest peak in Scotland. When I finished, I stood, making sure the chair scraped. This outlines my report to the chief constable and the basis for the warrant. I expect a messenger will arrive presently to inform me it has been served. I hope, for her sake, she confesses. It may be the only way to avoid the severest penalties. I let the final words hang. A door burst open and Truman Harwell sprinted into the room, landing at my feet. Mary didn't do it. She's innocent. I did it. I did it. Chapter 10, The Confession. See, so you, you were close, not Cleverling, but Harwell. It was the guy you didn't hear about. <laughs> Seated in the chair I abandoned, Truman Harwell 
held his chin up and his shoulders square. I love Mary Leavenworth, he said. Since the first day, she has been kind, in a way above and beyond being a secretary in her uncle's employ. Miss Eleanor was polite, but always made it clear that there was a line between us. Miss Mary wasn't like that. Throughout my life, I've been overlooked in favor of the prettier children. I worked hard, I performed, but there was always a shinier rock in the garden. I didn't press my feelings on Miss Mary, not because they weren't real, but because I'm a realist. I did not have the resources to offer her the life she deserved, but I did what I could in my own way. The second door opened, this time slowly. Henry Ritchie Claverling joined our little party. He stood against the wall, his jaw clenched as he stared at the killer. Tell me about that night, I said to Harwell. What happened? Leavenworth and I finished working that evening as I told you. He poured a sherry for me. I drank mine and left him for the night. I was in my room when I heard a soft sound in the hallway, skirts brushing by. I opened the door and saw Mary at the top of the stairs. My room is over the library. I had previously learned that, in my water closet, I could hear every word in the room below. Leavenworth was going to change his will, putting Eleanor in Mary's place. Mary tried reasoning with him, then begging. I didn't hear the whole conversation, but enough to know it was because of a man. Harwell swung his disapproving gaze to Claverling. I assumed she had a lover. I had no idea Mary was married. I had come to see her that night, Claverling said, to convince her to leave with me. She refused to see me. Harwell turned away from his rival. Leavenworth scolded Mary for being ungrateful, for betraying him. That was when Mary cried out to God himself for help, and I was there to answer. After Mary returned to her room, I went to the library. I told Leavenworth that I had forgotten my journal and walked directly past him into the bedroom. I withdrew the pistol, returned to the doorway, and I shot him. I froze then, waiting for the household to come running. Someone had to have heard the shot in the early night, but no one came. I picked up a handkerchief and cleaned the pistol and then put the pistol back in its place. I hid the handkerchief between the couch cushions, planning to get it later. Then I took the key and left, locking the door. I was returning to my room when Hannah was coming down the steps carrying a candle. When she asked, when asked, she would tell the police, you saw me. Okay, let's try that sentence again. When asked, she would tell the police that she saw me and I would be sunk. I drew her into the plot then, telling her Leavenworth was dead and that she would be a suspect. I worked her into a frenzy, implicating Mary and everyone else the woman cared for to get her to leave. It took me pledging to marry Hannah for her to do as I asked. She left the house with what money I could give her, some clothes borrowed from the laundry, and headed to the one place she knew she would be protected, Mrs. Belden. All went well then. You were confused by Hannah's disappearance. I didn't notice it was Eleanor's handkerchief, but that played well. I realized I had to dispose of the key, which was still in my possession. I'd planned to drop it in a grate to make it disappear, but one of your men nearly caught me. Out of necessity, I hid it in Mary's room. I didn't expect it to be found that quickly, or that Eleanor would again be blamed. Harwell looked me in the eyes now. I did everything I could to dissuade you of Eleanor's guilt. Short of confessing, I said. There was a knock on the door. Enter, I said. Q opened and conducted in Mary Leavenworth. She had taken two steps before her eyes found the form of her husband. What is this? We are solving the mystery of your uncle's murder, I said. 
Her gaze snapped to me. I didn't do it, she said. Neither did Eleanor. I know, I told her. I did it, Harwell snapped. I killed him for you. She retreated, bumping into Q. For, for me? Why, why would you do such a thing? Because I love you, he said. You asked God to help you find a way out, and I made you a way out. She wrapped her arms around her stomach and made the low sound of a wounded animal. That was a selfish cry. This death should lead to one that is so beloved. She looked up at Claverling. I am sorry, my darling. I've treated you poorly. I was afraid of losing all I had. I was a coward, and you deserve better than me. Harwell threw himself at her feet. I did this for you, not him. I gave you your life. I did this. Me. Perhaps for the first time, Mary really saw Harwell, and she was disgusted. I would trave every penny to have another hour with my uncle, to thank him for the life he gave an orphan, to tell him I loved him. The money doesn't matter. Eleanor has always known that. I wasn't as smart. I thought it made me who I was. I was wrong, and my uncle paid the price. Mary looked at Raymond. I renounced the inheritance. It is Eleanor's. All of it. Raymond held out his hands, easing a skittish animal. This is not the time for such decisions. It is, she said, looking at her husband. I have everything I will ever need. Claverling went to her then, pulling her under his shoulder and pressing a kiss to her hair. What about the maid? Raymond asked Harwell. Why did you kill her? She was innocent in all of this. Harwell was still kneeling on the floor, his shoulders sagging. He was getting too close, he said meaning me. Hannah was simple but obedient. I wrote the confession letter and sent it to her along with another one and the powder. I gave her specific directions that if she followed them exactly, she would see me very soon. She was to burn the original letter and then take the powder and lie on the bed with the sealed letter under her. Q lifted the man from the floor to a chair, cuffing his hands. Harwell then looked up at me. How did you know? You created a great number of contradictions and false trails, which took a great deal of time. The Mrs. Levin were certainly added to your mischief by thinking the other was guilty and keeping silent to protect the other. I looked at Mary, who had the presence to blush. The gun presented the first real clue. Either lady could have fired the loaded gun, but neither could have cleaned it. In the entire household, only you, the butler, Caverling, and Leavenworth himself could have cleaned the gun. Certainly, a conspiracy could have been possible. It has happened before. The second clue, however, eliminated this option. The note that was Hannah's confession. After spending last summer being a key part of the correspondence between Mary and Claverling, Hannah knew exactly who he was. Had she written the letter, she would have named him, not simply described him. That pointed me to someone who was not privy to the events of last summer. I had my theory, but little proof, I said until tonight. Q, escort Mr. Harwell to the station, charge him with the murder of Mr. Horatio Leavenworth and Miss Hannah Chase. Case closed. This is a long episode. You know, the original story was over 100,000 words, and what we just did was down to 8,000. So once again, we left a lot on the editing floor, but let's check that it made sense. Harwell detailed out his actions proving that Anna Catherine Green had really solid logic. She never relied mm -hmm. on coincidence, even though the word coincidence was used like nine times. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And she did force Harwell to think on his feet, which resulted in a few good herrings. I will say the only part I didn't like about the story was the maid Hannah. I mean, that got way convoluted. And I even had a hard time bringing it into this podcast because it was so just, I think it was just another like trail. something stuck on a wall. Like, um, yeah. Yeah. I think well, it was a device I that the author used, but of all of the story, stupid. I thought that was the only weak I'm part. Sorry, you're yeah. in a whole library. And the only place you can find to hide a handkerchief is a couch. There are endless books. Open a book. Open a book. I didn't think of that. It's a library. It's full of stuff. That is an awesome point. There are a bajillion hiding spots, and they picked. (laughs) And second of all, to actually, I get it that that in the end, it was kind of slightly pointless. The whole, I, it, I don't, I don't even know. No, I think it was just stupid. Kind of slightly I think it was just stupid. The whole, yeah, I get that Harwell somehow, you know, finds this handkerchief, just picks it up, doesn't think much about it. I don't know yeah, why he doesn't just it? take it pockets, with him when right? he leaves. That was, was the other part so that was a little that like, you why? Put it on you or something? You like, there's no. You have pockets. Yeah. There was no reason to leave that. You just carried it in your hand. No, I thought the idea that he put the gun yeah. back in the place, it, it definitely did a good job of eliminating yeah. strangers. So yeah. it really kept it tight on the suspects. That part I liked. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, the, the whole thing with Claverland, Every time I heard it, all I can name, think was uh, I don't know, Leroy, Leroy Jenkins. Robbins, just, it's an odd name. I was. I didn't change any of the uh, the names that the original author had this time. I could say them all, even though maybe I said Claverling a couple different ways. But all in all, I do really like her story. She does amazing detail. The legal stuff is always a lot of fun. It definitely gives us a peek into nineteenth uh, century law. Um, I give the logic eighty-five to ninety percent. If she'd have left out Hannah and that stupid handkerchief that shouldn't have been shoved in a couch cushion, I probably would have given a ninety-eight yep. percent. Um, yeah, all in all, a good one. Yeah. So that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting the season with just a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Every little bit helps. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf, that's with two Fs, dot com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Grease and the Leavenworth Case was written by T.G. Wolf, adapted from The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. Music and production are by Jack Wolf, and episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Jack, take us out.